Hi everyone, welcome to our new podcast, Make It Make Sense, uh, hosted by me, Leila Hussein, who's now the new rector of St Andrews University, and I would like to welcome my rector's assessor, Stella. Hi Stella. Hello everyone, my name is Stella, I am the rector's assessor this year, so I work with Leila on University Court, um, and I'm very pleased to announce um, a guest who's joining us this week. We have Fiona Hill on the call with us. Yay, hi Fiona, welcome. <laughs> So Fiona, do you want to do a quick introduction? Yeah, well, I mean, the main uh, thing to know is that I'm uh, an alumna of St Andrews. Um, what else is there to know other than that? Um, but um, oh, you know, I'm oh, currently... Fiona, you, have, you have a great little career. You know, you have a great career. <laughs> I think we need to know a little bit about you. <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, after, after St Andrews, I um, uh, came on a scholarship to the United States and... Um, I've been um, in the US now for a uh, rather a long time, sort of 30 odd years. And I, I work currently at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., where I'm a senior fellow. But I've spent um, a couple of terms in uh, government. One is the National Intelligence Officer for uh, Russia and Eurasia. And uh, the second, uh, which made me somewhat notorious, um, as the uh, Deputy Assistant to President and Senior Director for Europe and Russia, under the uh, Trump administration. And um, uh, I uh, found myself in the international and national spotlight uh, in the first uh, Trump impeachment trial <clears throat> back in uh, the end of 2019. Um, it's a bit of a been a whirlwind in the time since then, because now I'm actually talking to you against the backdrop of a second impeachment trial. So uh, anyway, yes, yeah, so it, uh, it was a bit <laughs> unexpected. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, so the topic of today's podcast is widening access. So widening access to higher, in, higher education in general and in um, universities like St. Andrews. Um, but we're going to focus on St. Andrews in the way that we can, we can do that here. So I have a couple of questions for you guys just to kind of um, help us structure the discussion. Um, but we're going to start off with just a, you know, a bit more of a general question which was, um, which is, where did you both study and what was your degree course? Fiona, you go ahead. Yeah, well, I did study at St Andrews and uh, my degree course was uh, a joint degree in uh, Russian uh, language and literature and modern history, so Russian and modern history. And it was kind of one of the um, uh, first sets of joint degrees at the university when I started um, back in 1984. And, you know, it's great actually to see that there were so many uh, different options now because it was actually quite difficult um, back in the 80s to, you know, kind of put together joint degrees with some limitations and things. But that's what I did. So I did uh, Russian and modern history. And I actually am very proud to say that I have used my degree in every single job that I've ever had, which you can't always say, right? So um, my St Andrews degree put me in a very good shape for everything I've done since. So I went to, uh, so when I first started at my university, it was called University of uh, uh, Thames Valley University. So my last year, it became University of West London. So I did my counselling and psychotherapy degree, and then I went on to do my postgrad as well. Uh, but I picked my university based on a need that I had at that time. So I was a single mum. Uh, I can only do night classes, so that's how I found it. So for me, I didn't have the privilege of, picking a university based on their status. For me, the, 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 the need was who's doing night classes where it fits in with my timing as a, as a parent. And, but I was very lucky. Uh, it's very rare in the world of psychotherapy, you get a black female African professor. Like it's a very narrow space. 
So I got a Nigerian woman who was my uh, professor uh, and it's a very white uh, 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 profession still, mainly dominated by white men. And to have, I was really lucky that I found uh, a professor who guided me in those years when I was training. Uh, and I am somebody who literally went on to training as a therapist because by then I was already a, an activist. I was working as a youth outreach worker. I really wanted to pick up my listening skills, which led to my career in therapy. And, you know, like Fiona, I have used my, this is, you know, this is a, this is a, a degree that I've used for all aspects of my life. You know, I'm now working in international development. I'm constantly bringing my background in mental health, advocating for mental health and safe spaces. You know, even this podcast really was started because we wanted a safe space where we can have unpack certain conversations we can't do at meetings. You know, so for me, I like using, again, those skills, even as we're having this conversation. So the idea of having an uncomfortable conversation in a safe space, it's something that I learned in my degree and I use it in every aspect of my personal life and my professional life. So that's, yeah, so that's that's where I studied, yeah. So Stella, there's also, an important message there that um, uh, Lola is also making that, you know, I think, you know, should resonate for higher education. It's access mm -hmm. continuously for lifelong yeah. learning. Because yeah. even I think, you know, when I think back to the 1980s when I started, I didn't know, you know, where when I was growing up that there were all these other options for study. You know, I mean, I, I was the first in my family to go to university and I just didn't know that you could do things in different sequencing. You got the impression that there was only one chance. And I think what Leila just said there was super important, you know, that you found something that was tailored for your life circumstances. Oh, you know, you can't just always, you know, life doesn't work on a, a perfect timetable. You can't always no. just go and sort of study in a university or a training college or any kind of course when you're 18. No. When you leave school, you know, life happens. And, you know, for a lot of people in the UK, they got cut out of any kind of form of higher or further education because they didn't know courses were there or they thought that they would never have a second chance. And I think what you just said there, Leila, is a fantastic mm -hmm. message, even for universities like St Andrews. How can you make it more accessible over right. time for people who might right. be a single parent or people I, who I, want to I, do something I different? I would even think for a second I could have studied uh, St. Andrews when I was a single parent. And absolutely, I agree. These, and I was lucky because I had parents who were educated. So my parents were very on my case. You know, I, I, I was in love and I got married quite early and I got pregnant. It was, that was the story. And my parents, when the marriage didn't work out, they were like, okay, you know, okay, you know, we have, you have a baby. That doesn't mean you can never get your education. Like, yeah, especially for my family, uh, education was a way out of the current life because you know my parents lost everything in Somalia so they came here so we can have a better life so for me having that access um I'm so grateful to that university for really catering so I always I I I'm, I love when I see young people who are picking universities based on you know it's it's got great status it's going to be good for my career I was a 25 year old 25 26 at a time and my question was where can I go, you know, in, in terms of childcare, what, what fits into my life? And I didn't care what status that university had. Uh, for me, it was just like, can I get into a classroom where I can get a degree and hopefully I get a job so me and my daughter can live a better life? That was literally my need. And, but I was so lucky that actually was the best thing that's happened to me because in these types of courses, you don't get a representation. 
So I was really lucky to have ended up, you know, it was very far away from me, uh, this university. So I, would, I wouldn't get home just, just before midnight sometimes. It was that far away. But I also, there was a plus side to this as well, because I had not just a US that catered to my needs, but in terms of representation, I had a woman that looked like my family in, in that room. Yeah, I mean, my path to university was not particularly difficult. I think um, when we think about access to higher education, you know, there are certain boxes that we take that, you know, present as barriers to accessing higher education. And I ticked a lot of those boxes coming from a working class background, um, not a super wealthy background. And it just never really occurred to me to not go to university. And I think that the way that the system is set up, um, especially in England, um, university, the idea of, you know, having to take out a loan, it wasn't something that really was a barrier to me because I understood that, you know, it, I was going to end up with a really large loan at the end of it, but it wasn't, you know, the, the amount I paid back wasn't going to be based on the amount that I owed. It was the amount that I, I earned. And so it was like, well, university was always going to be, you know, the option for me. I think for other students, uh, especially students who weren't as high achieving, um, it was a very different story. I think my school very much pushed for uh, the students who kind of got, who were at the kind of top of the class, I guess, um, not, not that I was at the top of the class. I was very comfortably doing or, doing well enough to not draw too much attention. Um, but for the students who, you know, were at that level, we were really pushed towards the Russell Group University. It was, like, you know, it was never really a, it was never really an idea that we wouldn't go to university. It was like, you're going to university, you're going to one of these universities. Whereas for the students who didn't do as well, obviously the conversation was more centered around things like vocational studies and apprenticeships. Um, though a lot of us did end up going to university. Um, but that was at sixth form. But even before we got to that point, you know, they kind of separated the wheat from the chaff at GCSE level. And even that conversation started then of, you know, you're going on to higher education, you're probably not. And I think that conversation early on needs to change as well. And I think that the way that that changes is the students at that level, even at GCSE, I think the way that students are taught, um, the way that information is shared with students, their, their, you know, their strengths and their weaknesses, I think that if the, the method of teaching is changed at that level, we'll see more and more kids kind of progress on to higher education and have that option of university opening up to them, rather than I think there's, there's this sense that they're kind of a lost cause, you know, even at that stage, that they're a lost but, cause. But also uh Stella what I'm realizing you and I are from African families right mm -hmm. so there's also that sense of there's a culture where we are expected to go to university it doesn't matter let me tell you I have seen a Somali man or a woman you didn't have a choice if you lived in a council state you had to go to university because it was the only way out and I also do wonder also, when we, this, this idea of access, if you look at you know, universities around the UK, the black kids you see are African kids majority of the time. Mm -hmm. So where are the Caribbean uh, students yeah. who don't feel they can't access? So at least some of us have, have had this privilege, even we didn't live in a, you know, the best areas in the UK, but there was always that influence of, you will go to university. I might not go to St. Andrews, but I was gonna go to university. There's also yeah. that, that, that aspect as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I want to jump in on here as well, because that's absolutely right. When I was listening to, you know, what you said, um, Leila, about your parents saying, you know, mm. you're going to go to university, of course you are, yeah. you know, no matter what's happened, you're going to think yeah. about this. And as you said, you know, your family's like um, stars are African and you mentioned the Afro-Caribbean uh, community. But I think you could look across the board at British communities, different mm -hmm. kinds of communities. So I grew up in a small town in County Durham. County Durham is 96 plus percent white, white British. And white mm -hmm. British meaning, you know, Scots, Irish, Welsh and traveller. And my great grandmother was from a traveller community, wasn't Roma, Roma, Romani or Romani child, but was, you know, a Scottish traveller. Mm -hmm. And um, my hometown was 98 percent white and it was working class pretty much okay. in its entirety. And nobody talked about you going to university, you know, as a, as a, as a normal progression. In fact, there was such low expectations that people were kind of lucky, you know, to kind of uh, figure out that they'd get on a training course or, you know, some sort of an apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, being older, um, you know, I graduated in 1984 and that was the height of uh, the youth employment crisis in the UK, all over the UK, only 10% of um, school leavers in 1984 in my area got any kind of full-time job, 10%. So 90% of people were scrambling around trying to figure out what to do with themselves. So a lot of people did try to go on training courses and a handful of people went to university. So my comprehensive school had been the secondary modern school. Those mm -hmm. systems have long gone, of course. That's your grandparents, Stella, <laughs> you know, would have gone to something like this. But... Um, it wasn't set up to, um, you know, do A-levels. And it had had, um, you know, a very short record in the comprehensive uh, school system. And I was one of, you know, just the first few classes of kids doing A-levels. There was only a handful of us. And we had no advice on really, you know, where to go. People were getting pushed out of school to go to uh, training courses, you know, for the local manufacturing um, industries, which were all closing down. You know, all the steelworks were closing down, the shipyards, the railway, wagon works, the coal mines, everything was just going. And there just was no real advice. And um, so I think you and I once talked about, I picked St Andrews out of a brochure that just happened to be, um, you know, in the local library. And it was in colour and all the others were in black and white. <laughs> I think I and, Yeah, and I said, God, that really looks beautiful. You know, and it's in Scotland. Some of my family are from Scotland. You know, maybe I'll apply there. You know, it was basically, I had no idea what I was applying to. And, you know, with mm. the UCAS form, I was trying to fix five universities and I had everything from Lancaster Poly, which is, you know, I think um, changed its name now to Liverpool. You know, I put some London in there. You know, I just, you know, hope to hope for the best. And I have a story of applying to Oxford, which is a total disaster because I got pushed in that direction, but no preparation, you know, whatsoever. Now, things have changed a lot since then. I mean, I think there's been the expansion of education. I was totally paid for by my local county council um, because of means testing and low income. So I had everything paid for. So I had no debt. I didn't have to do what Stella had to do is take out a loan. But, you know, kind of the access expanded. But when you look at the um, educational attainment of people like me from the Northeast, it hasn't changed. So the, the point that I was um, you know, trying to make here is that whereas you know, some communities in uh, the UK, as um, Stella and um, Leli are saying, you know, African uh, families, other immigrants, uh, South Asia. I mean, I had a lot of people when I got to St Andrews mm -hmm. were from Pakistan or from India, you know, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, you know, for example. Uh, white working class families just didn't think of um, education, uh, higher education, going to a university, particularly a Russell group, as either mm -hmm. uh, achievable 
or as just something necessary. There was so much of an idea that you'd go straight from you know, school and try to find a job. So when you now look at the statistics that um, uh, you know, the UK government and other institutions have um, uh, collected, the lowest levels of educational attainment in the UK are white working class boys and mm -hmm. the white working class and children on free school mm -hmm. meals outside of London. Because the other important point is that London has much better outcomes than anywhere one else or anywhere else rather. And Sally, you were in London, so there was a lot of choice. Mm -hmm. So I think you're from Leicester originally, right? Yeah. So I mean, it's yeah. not that obviously it's not the same, but you know the the old industrial towns of the UK and all the coastal towns, like the old seaside resorts, you know, kind of in Wales and Scotland and you know all the way around England, they have the worst educational outcomes of anywhere. So people just don't think about going to university there. There's no parental push. And there's not, as Stella was saying before, the schools even pushing kids to sort of think elite university like a St Andrews uh, or pushing them in the direction, you know, that your parents did too, is sort of thinking, now what can I do to, you know, kind of achieve my goals? Yeah, and I think kind of listening to you guys' experience and thinking back on my experience, it's clear that quite a lot has changed um, since you guys were kind of applying for university because, like I said... Oh God, I'm so old! Yeah, you're told. Not old. <laughs> not old, but um, I don't know. It was. It was. Oh my god! I'm glad it's changed. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't. I, I just. I'm just thinking back to like when I was at when I was applying for university, and it was. I didn't think about you know maybe it's just because I wasn't really thinking about it, but I wasn't worried about necessarily getting in, um, because of the stats for people like me. Um, I wasn't worried about you know even applying to St Andrews. I only, you know, I'd never heard of St. Andrews. It just hadn't been on my radar until, um, and I always tell this story and it's a bit embarrassing, but I just really liked getting posts. So I just started looking for universities that would send me a prospectus. Um, and St. Like Andrews that. was one of them. And I just went, oh, how random, this random university. I, ha I knew nothing about it. It was in Scotland. I was desperate to go to Scotland for university, um, but I'd been obsessed with Edinburgh. And I remember when I got the prospectus, I started looking through it. And as I was reading it, I was like, no, if I keep looking at this, I'm going to want to go to St. Andrews and not Edinburgh. And like everyone at my school knew I was, I wanted to go to Edinburgh. They'd been like stopping me in the corridor, like, yeah, Edinburgh. And I was like, and then I basically had to go around and go, no, not Edinburgh, St. Andrews. St. Andrews is the dream. So I, I was obsessed with St. Andrews. Um, I was never worried about, you know, I, I, I didn't think about whether or not I was going to get in necessarily. It wasn't something that was concerning to me. Um, but just thinking back to the thought of me going to university, it was never something that I was like, I, there's, you know, there's a chance I won't be able to do that. Um, and I think for a lot of the people around me at that level that, you know, in sixth form, it was like, if we want to go to university, we will go to university. And so I think the kind of opportunities, maybe just in my area, I don't know, I think I just got, you know, it's possible I just got lucky with my school. Um, but I think for a lot of students, there is that concern looking at university and the kind of costs associated with it. Even, you know, as far as the loan, I think I understood, you know, this idea that it, you know, you're going to end up owing a lot of money. But even though it's a really large, um, even if even though it's a really large amount, the way that you pay it back, you know, the kind of nuance of that. I think a lot of students just got really scared. The idea of going to a four year yeah. university. Um, take you know if you're from a background like mine getting the full maintenance loan plus tuition you're looking at 20 you know close to 20,000 pounds a year that you're borrowing and by the end of your degree close to 80,000 pounds that you're mm -hmm. that you're owing and yeah. I think that for a lot of students a lot of people around me who didn't consider going to university 
I think the idea of owing that much money, even though they understood the kind of paying back side of it, was just too daunting. Um, and you think about the fact that it's the, it's the poorest students who end up having to borrow the, you know, more money. Um, the students yeah. who are probably going to be paying it off. Like, it kind of feels like a tax yep. on the poor um, because you realise even at university, you get students who get here and it's like, if you come from a poorer background, you're more likely to have to work, um, do a part-time job to cover the cost of rent, things like that. And it's at that point that you kind of realise, looking at university, I think it's easy from my position to look at university and just kind of say, well, if you want to go to university, you can go to university. Um, and I think make that very simplistic statement. But when you really think about the logistics of it, especially as a student from a poorer background, it's incredibly daunting. And I think that feeds a lot into the kind of the number of students who are actually from that, those backgrounds actually going on to university. And I think the actual, there's an extra layer for me of St. Andrews being predominantly white and having its reputation. It's not something I was aware of. I just was not right. cognizant of that. But it was pointed out to me by other people in my year who were like, why do you want to go to that university? You know, mm. it's it lacks so, it, you know, it lacks that diversity. And I was like, I haven't really noticed, to be honest. And I remember two of my friends sat me down with the prospectus and they were like, um, you know, if we look through this and they don't have people of colour, you know, they would put them in there if they had them. And we couldn't find many. And that was kind of when the concern kind of really started for me. But at the end of the day, I think the kind of important thing is that it, it seems clear that that kind of experience of applying to university or even the kind of thinking around going to university seems to have changed quite uh, significantly since you guys were, were applying. I think there's still some of the barriers yeah. though, Stella, you know, like you were saying, because, um, you know, although, um, you know, as you say, St Andrews is not especially diverse, certainly in terms of uh, BME or, you know, kind of, uh, I mean, there's a lot of uh, diversity from international students, but it's also not very diverse from socioeconomic background. So, I mean, you're in a way doubly disadvantaged as, you know, kind of a minority student, but also from working class background. But there's an awful lot of Scottish students who don't apply to go to St Andrews uh, because, you know, they come from low income, you know, working class backgrounds. Scotland is also, you know, predominantly white, um, you know, as uh, just demographically. Uh, and, you know, but they don't see themselves reflected in St Andrews. When I got to St Andrews, you know, back in 1984, I hardly knew anyone from a working class background. I mean, yeah, people were, you know, solidly middle class white collar professionals. But there was an awful lot of, you know, aristocrats and, you know, the British uh, upper class people who, you know, would, would have gone to Oxford and Cambridge, but, you know, they hadn't got in and St Andrews was their safety school where, you know, for me, St Andrews was just like the pinnacle, you know, kind of thing. But there were so few people from my, um, you know, low income background. And, you know, even with the maintenance grant, I had to work the whole time. But if I'd had to take on debt, I would never have gone. I wouldn't have gone. Yeah. I mean, there's just no way I would have done. And I think that's still a huge barrier for working class, you know, no matter what racial background you are, students, because you think just like you there, how am I going to pay that back? Because, you know, you had Layla, and I think it would be really interesting to hear more about this, about the opportunities in London. First of all, big city, lots of different courses you can take, and you can tailor it to a job. You've got a, you know, a job. Now, of course, you're always lucky to get a job, but there are so many job opportunities in, um, in London. So you come from oh, somewhere I'm like County Durham, and there's no jobs back at home. Um, You've got, you know, maybe a degree in classics. What what, what are you going to do with that? So, you know, I didn't have a lot of advice on what to study. I'm incredibly lucky that Russian and modern history led to a whole lifetime career. But I did mm. worry at different points, am I going to get a job out of this? Have I just, you know, kind of wasted this opportunity 
And what if I just have to go back to Bishop Auckland? Why am I going to find a job? Maybe I'll just end up in the same job that I would have done, you know, had I not gone to college. And I know a lot of kids from my background who've written to me, you know, over the last uh, few years and said, look, they graduated, you know, sometimes from St Andrews or Bristol or somewhere like this. They ended up back mm -hmm. home packing shelves in Safeway yeah. or, you know, kind of um, Sainsbury. Sorry, Safeway is the US version of oh, Safeway. Yeah, Safeway as well. But anyway, <laughs> Sainsbury's. And they can't find a job because there's not opportunities locally and they don't have networks in London or somewhere else to find a job. So then they regret you know, taking out the loans, you know, as you were basically saying, Stella. So you've got to kind of figure out, and the university's going to have to help with this, how do you get a pathway to jobs, not just the pathway to getting yeah. in and getting a degree? But especially, especially now since the pandemic, the ones in London, my daughter's one of the, you know, she's 18, just, you know, but she just went into her last year at college. She will be suffering and she lives in London. So I can't even imagine how that's going to be even worse than other areas that were already struggling with access in terms of, um, getting a job um so the, the access is na now even narrowed even more because of the current situation we're in uh in the world even like with my own experience uh when you're a therapist you have to in your last year you have to go look for a placement and even in such a place like it was really difficult but the only reason i found a place because i had connections so that was the only way it was for my networks i could get because it was very it was such a even in london it was a very white space but guess, guess where I got my first uh, uh, counselling job? It was in a refugee counselling service because that was the only place I was hiring black people. So it was very, and that was in London, you know. So you, I can't even imagine what it must be like outside of London. Network, it, it really, it's, it's, it's how I, I, because of, and also my profile, that's how I uh, accessed. But another Somali woman who looks like me, had similar experience with the same, you know, and if she didn't have those networks, I don't know what would have happened. I think it's important to also uh, uh, acknowledge that um, that that itself is another privilege when you have a better network and a better access. In like, for example, me even being in this position at St Andrews is already put me at different pedestal. Uh, I have different universities around the world contacting me just to speak at their university, just because I have now become a rector at this university. So it's, it's given me a whole different status, and 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 that now gives me other access but it's how do I use that access now is the question I always say when we have power we have to use it the right way like we have to use that power to ensure other people have you know the door gets bigger I guess uh, so for me even when hiring uh, Stella it was extremely important um, the fact that we you know we had our first court meeting a couple of weeks ago and you know, after 607 years later, two black women finally made it into this room. You know, that was that was a big deal. Things are changing, but we have to use that space to open it for more, more, more people that look like us. We also have to make sure that other people don't, you know, kind of basically um, extend all context networks just based on how people look, you know, kind of how they sound and, and where they're from. I have a colleague at the Brookings Institution, you know, where I work. A woman called mm. Camille uh, Bousset, who's um, African-American, and she's been doing this really interesting research. She's part mm. of a whole project at Brookings to, you know, kind of basically raise up black Americans. But her research in all these cities across America um, has shown that people's contact groups are just, you know, completely defined by the, the social and ethnic group that they're from. And people yep. don't bust out of these groups. So if you're yep. in a disadvantaged minority, your contacts are extraordinarily limited. Mm. 
And yep. Yukoshi shows that white men have the biggest contact groups. Uh, you know, white women, you know, As somewhere beyond that. But of course, you know, income also plays in. Yeah. But, you know, kind of uh, the, the, the message that I took away from all of Camille's work, um, and obviously the United States is much more diverse as a whole than, you know, the United Kingdom is, but London is more diverse than anywhere, actually, even in the United States. Uh, but the message I took away is we have to find ways of breaking across all of those contact barriers mm. so that, you know, you didn't have to, you know, basically, Leila, get your first job break from another Somali woman. You know, someone like me, me could have given you a job break or I, you know, kind of I certainly wouldn't, you know, my first job break was getting a cleaning job in the local hospital because my mum was a nurse then, my dad was a, yeah. a porter, yeah. you know, but, you know, kind of how can you open up, you know, people mm -hmm. getting um, other okay. job breaks from different contacts? Like you say, yeah. you can't wait until you're the rector of St Andrews to suddenly have <laughs> all these doors open to you. You can't be on my age, like 55, and suddenly, you know, get a platform from having done a testimony in front of Congress. That's that's just too long to wait. You know, so yeah. how can we give everybody like Stella and everyone else at St Andrews the same contacts that everybody else takes for granted? Right. Okay. Awesome. So um, looking at the questions that we've got, um, okay, so, I mean, we've touched on a lot of these uh, these issues, but um, I think the first question I'm going to go with is, uh, how do you see representation at St. Andrews today, so the actual university, um, in terms of socioeconomic, racial diversity, but also nationality? And um, I guess this is difficult for, for Leila, who hasn't kind of been to St. Andrews recently. Um, but I've seen enough. You've seen enough, <laughs> Um, I, I, yeah. you know. <laughs> but I mean, we can kind of, I guess, start with um, Fiona talking about what it was like when you were here, and then maybe I could um, kind of fill in with what it's kind of like now. Yeah, and I think you know, part of it is, um, you know, also the statistical information, the data that you have, because I've, <clears throat> in, I, I've been working on a book on opportunity, which I'm trying to finish at the moment, which covers mm -hmm. a lot of these topics. And I notice it's extraordinarily hard to get the kind of socioeconomic income background, probably because of data privacy, uh, you know, and other restrictions. So you can see the kind of, you know, the racial breakdown um, of uh, the university, uh, which, of course, is quite stark. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you, when you put it in the context of Scotland, it's not that much of a surprise because it's mm. actually, you know, doing you know, about the same as Scotland, which, you know, Scotland's a, a, a country of, you know, five million people. Um, it's obviously not a great magnet for um, immigration, although, you know, Star, as you suggested, Edinburgh, you know, is very appealing for lots of people to try to come to and is quite diverse. But the rest of the country is not. So, the, you know, when I got to St Andrews, St Andrews looked white like, you know, the rest of Scotland. There were some um, you know, students from different backgrounds. You know, I mentioned I had a lot of friends who were, um, you know, British, obviously, but their parents had come from Pakistan or India or Sri Lanka, often South Asian. My best friend, my roommate, um, her father was from Pakistan. And there were some African students, from Ghana, Sierra Leone, Nigeria, uh, but they were from elite backgrounds and they'd come through private schools. They'd been sent to school in the United Kingdom. So, you know, they were in a kind of different class group. Uh, they were not, you know, as, um, you know, you've discussed, Stella, you know, second, third generation, you know, Brits who um, were from working class backgrounds. And, you know, that um, brings new dimensions to things because I think, you know, identity is multifaceted. You know, when mm -hmm. I was a kid growing up, I knew I was from the northeast of England, but I didn't know anyone from any other different classes. I, it took me a while to realise, you know, that everybody, you know, discriminated against the working class, which is why I tried to move out. And I didn't think of myself really as a woman you know, kind of a, a girl, female for a long time. It was just a 
you know, thing, you know, kind of just, well, that was a sort of descriptor until I started to face, you know, gender discrimination and all the other kinds of things you do as you, you know, grow on, uh, as you move on. But, you know, identities can be quite fluid. And I became very acutely aware of being working class. The first time someone made fun of my accent and, you know, I was about 13 or 14, asked me where I was from, what my dad did, you know, what school did I go to? And then I was like, whoa, what's all this about? You know, so you, you, your identity forms and changes as you go on uh, through life. And I think the university has to do a sort of a, 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 a better job in a way uh, of understanding the different facets of this. And we have to find a way of capturing that information so we can know how can we increase access for the groups that are underrepresented. So being, you know, black and working class, clearly massively underrepresented, but being Scottish and, you know, kind of white working class, which is a lot of Scotland, massively underrepresented too, because they, they also feel... Uh, that you know there's barriers to entry in the university and it's you know might be because there's not people like them accent class kind of school that people went to but also just affordability like you were talking about before and so I know there's been a lot of change but boy is there a lot of change to go and you know kind yeah. of I think it's just historic and just a fantastic achievement Leila that you're the rector because you know that will then give people somebody to look to say hey that could be me you know I could do that we need yeah. to do more of that I think I think me and Stella being in this position currently, it's saying change is happening. Right. Okay. Yeah. It took a while, but change is happening, and it's really how me and Stella also, what legacy are we going to leave behind in three years? You know what 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 we're going to do? And I, I and Stella and I had this conversation a few times, and I said, you know what, if we even leave a message where we can say anyone feels they can actually come and enter this space now. We've, that's a big that's a big deal to me yeah. um, so that's really I think it's definitely that's definitely a big change um for for, for this institution a change is a change is happening and and I think we have to acknowledge that but there is a lot of work that needs to be done to ensure that we do continue with that work yeah absolutely you know, in terms of my experience uh, of coming to the university and what it's kind of like on the ground it's incredible for me how different St Andrews is from even my first year in 2017 I think or 2018 it's been such a long time um but you know three and a half years ago um I, I remember what it was like kind of walking down the street being surprised to see another black person um it was a kind of a genuine shock and I also remember that how self-conscious it it makes you um, that kind of sense of has anyone else noticed how I'm different? Um, is this something that they're thinking about? Are they reaching conclusions based on that? Um, and it's something that I've been I've been surprised to see has kind of changed in the last couple of years. I've been seeing a lot more black students in the town, and I know that the university's kind of commitment to diversity is something that's kind of exploded over the last couple of years. And I know that a lot of work has been done to address that. But I think it's important to also kind of recognise that there are there is still so much more to, to do. Um, you know, when we talk about students from working class backgrounds, I think it's important to think about the progression um, from university to employment, like you were talking about earlier. And something that I've suggested is that that pathway, that process is better clearly defined for students so they have an understanding of how the university is going to support them once they finish their degree. Um, more work done to kind of expand those networks and put them in contact with those networks um, and make those more freely, freely accessible for those students. I think also we need to look at the cost of coming to university and the cost of living in the town. Um, we did a lot of work, me and um, a bunch of students who were working on affordability last summer. We did a lot of work to figure out 
um, how people felt about the cost of accommodation in St Andrews. Um, because St Andrews is eye-wateringly expensive as far as the cost of living. Even university accommodation is very expensive. And we actually did manage to get a bit of data together because we had, it. I think it was either three or 4,000 people responded to that accommodation survey. And we kind of tried to get an idea of the kind of income, um, you know, people, uh, the kind of income background that people are coming from. And, you know, we, we got a bit of data on that, but it was interesting that there was kind of this solidarity, even from students who could afford the accommodation. Quite often the comments were about, well, I can afford it, but, you know, sometimes barely. And also, you know, if, I, if I'm struggling to cover this coming from my background, I can't imagine how someone from a poorer background would be able to afford to be here. Mm-hmm. And so I think, it, like you said, it's all multifaceted. It's it's about identifying the various points at which, you know, it's not just about getting people here. It's not just about making them promises that you can't keep. It's about making sure that once they are here, they can afford to be here, um, that they have a clear path out of university because it, it's an investment. And I think people want to have a better idea of what they're investing in. And I think it's important that the university for its reputation um, to kind of draw more students here as well, if it has a, a clear plan, you know, a clear process that students know that they can access to, you know, get into the world of work, to, to access internships and opportunities. I think that that's really important. Um, so from that, we, I think we can kind of move on to one of the um, the next questions. So. You know, with the with the pandemic, obviously that's complicated the, the kind of living situation in the town. Quite a lot of students aren't here right now because of the restrictions. Um, and at the beginning of this year, we ended up in a situation where because of the A-level fiasco, let's call it, yeah. um, we ended up with quite a few students. I think, I think it was a couple hundred. I'm not sure. It might have just been a hundred. I can't remember. Who ended up having to stay in Dundee um, accommodation. Um, and so this kind of blew up the conversation about commuting students, um, which is something I kind of wanted to get on to next, which is we have a lot of students who can't afford to live in the town. A lot of students who put themselves in financial ruin to live in the town. Um, And I think it it does set up that divide between those kind of, you know, those students and the, the kind of town life and the university experience. So, you know, that's kind of my question with so many students living outside of the town, especially with the new Dundee situation. Are you worried that this might create diversions within the community, uh, especially with those richer students um, being able to live in St Andrews and the ones who can't necessarily afford it not being able to do that? I guess it depends on how it's managed, right? Because Lela, I mean, you could speak to your experiences having to commute in any case. I mean, you had all kinds of different, you know, life um, issues to contend with there, which, you know, some uh, St Andrews students do too. But, you know, I when I applied to go to St Andrews, um, you know, obviously coming from um, the outskirts of uh, Durham, actually, I, did, I only lived about 10 miles away from uh, Durham, you know, where I could have gone to university. It was um, if I'd gone to Durham, I would likely have had to live at home with my parents and, you know, take the bus in. Um, so um, it was a conscious uh, you know, decision not to apply to Durham, actually, because of that very point that you're making here, Stella, living on a campus. Uh, in a university gives you a whole different experience. It gives you those networks and contacts. Otherwise, you know, worrying about getting the bus home, you know, you're not staying for anything extracurricular. You can't socialise, you know, with students actually can't socialise and very much in a pandemic anyway. But, you know, the whole point is to have that um, student experience to make those contacts and networks for the future. 
because you know you want those networks to help you if you're looking for a job in Birmingham, Manchester, or you know London. You know you get a lot of tips from fellow students. You might get a tip from somewhere to live when you you know looking for another job, for example. You know and you you're missing out on making those connections. So I think the university. And, you know, the students groups need to figure out, you know, how can you bring the students who have limited means uh, onto the campus? You know, how can they actually they be prioritised in somewhere through affordable housing, you know, or, you know, kind of communal mutual assistance efforts to find them housing on campus? I mean, if you've got a car, uh, not every student, of course, does. But when, you know, when I was a student, very few people had cars, but those who did, you know, were definitely, you know, the wealthier students had a bike, you know, <laughs> but there's limits to, you know, whether you want to be biking along the road to Dundee late at night, you know, and get knocked off by somebody driving past you. You know, it's a very dangerous uh, way of keeping, you know, travelling about. So I think that that has to be prioritised because otherwise people are missing out on part of the opportunity of going to university. But Leila, I mean, you had already that to deal with in well, London. Yeah, so what I, did you again, do? I was, yeah. I, was, I, was, I, was, I was a single parent who couldn't afford to take the train all the time. So I had to. So I, I live in East London and my university was near Heathrow. So it's like good two hours nearly on the train already. So what I would do is um, I would leave early on a day. I would take different buses to get there. So I would take three, four buses to get there. I would save that little bit of money because I finished quite late in the evening. So I'm like, let me take the train on my way back. And I actually had a friend in class who dropped me off from the every every lesson. She would take me from the class and drop me off at the station. So I had that little bit of safety. Because, you know, being a black woman in, in, in that part of London by yourself at nighttime was not safe. And I remember I had to do a walk to my mother's house because there was no buses or anything near it. And I remember every night, every time I had class, my mom would be worried just in case something happened to me. So, I mean, even as you were talking about it, I, I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, how did I survive that actually? Because when you're in it, you don't realize what's happening because you're just surviving on that point. And I remember I had to move in with my mother when I was a student because I couldn't afford to live on my own because I had to, I needed some support. I needed some assistance. And, and because I was working, I wasn't entitled to loans, student loans. So I had to slowly pay that back. You know, my family helped me. You know, it was it was a struggle. And I, and I remember when I was going to university, I just wanted to get that degree and get a job and not need anyone's help anymore. Everything else that came in my career came afterwards. It wasn't planned. My actual plan was, I just want me and my daughter to have a better life that we're having right now. And the only way I was going to do it, it's by having this education. But it meant there was a bit of a, there's a sacrifice, you know, um, but maybe, maybe, maybe a hope that has changed now because, you know, I was a young mom and I needed some support, but there, the system just wasn't, didn't allow me to get to that university quite safely either. So I remember it was, it was a three years from really struggle because I couldn't afford to actually even travel to this university. I had to take like three, four buses from East London to get there. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a core message there. I mean, you um, overcame it. It um, you know made you the person that you are today. All of those struggles and sacrifices. I mean, it produced resilience, and I'm sure that that's you know something that you tell people in your work all the time. But it shouldn't be that hard. No, you know, no, there, there should be equal anymore, opportunity actually, for everyone. I'm exhausted. Exactly. I'm like, I don't want to keep surviving. Exactly, something. exactly right. You know, our life circumstances. <laughs> there shouldn't be such a thing as being you know born the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, that's kind of, you know, what education, you know, is all about, which is giving everybody access, access and opportunity. But if you can't access the education in the first case, or you have to do what you did, which is a heroic, you know, kind of task or hero heroic task. You know, I, mean, I, I, I mean, I did. I, 
I didn't even get to go to the student union bars because I was a mother. I had to come home. So I didn't get to do the social stuff that you did at university. Like it's the one dream I have for my daughter. I tell her, oh, you know, please make sure you have fun. I didn't get to do this. Like, I, 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 I think you don't understand how important because I missed out. I only found, I only went, I went to my first student union bar when I ended up lecturing at the university. <laughs> the students invited me for a drink. And I didn't know how cheap the drinks were. I didn't know this. And you might have missed out on something because, you know, some of the people that I met in the social groups, you know, kind mm. of in the societies that I was in, were people yeah. who helped me move on. No, I didn't have, I didn't, I didn't have a, I didn't have the luxury of the time to join any society while I was at university. I know I would have been good at them, but I didn't have the time. <laughs> you know, talking about access to the university, you know, we're kind of looking at it in that kind of domestic sense of like being in town. Um, or being in the UK, but you know, there's also the issue of access for international students around the world. So I kind of wanted to get you guys' thought on, you know, ways that the university can um, support international students in coming here, especially in light of Brexit and everything that means for students, particularly from the EU and their kind of newfound status as international students. Um, so just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, I think, you know, with Brexit, as you say, Stella, the university's going to have to plan ahead because if uh, Brexit actually leads to the breakup of the United Kingdom, which is, you know, entirely possible, uh, you know, given some of the, you know, various trajectories and difficulties over the next, you know, say five to ten years, then, you know, everywhere will be international for Scotland. Um, you know, though Scotland might, you know, eventually rejoin the EU. This is all just hypothetical, of course. I'm not suggesting that, you know, that is necessarily going to happen. But, you know, the, the university is going to have to think ahead, basically. And so there needs to be the same, you know, kind of approach to international students. Otherwise, you know, what you're going to have is a certain, you know, uh, group of international students, very privileged, you know, kind of wealthy, you know, which will then sort of skew the university again in the direction which it's been trying to move away. It'll raise house prices, you know, all the other affordability and access. It'll be just like in London, where, you know, people who, you know, live in London for several generations, you know, get priced out by, you know, lots of people kind of coming in and, you know, kind of basically pushing up property prices, etc. So that St Andrews, you know, would be in its future. When, um, uh, you know, I moved to the United States, um, you know, there were a lot of St Andrews students um, here already who, you know, I'd met because when I was at St Andrews, about 10% of St Andrews students were from the US. I think that's even higher percentage, you know, now, you know, with the expansion of the university because the numbers of people studying at St Andrews have increased. But they were all, you know, from, you know, pretty solid um you know middle class and i would say upper middle class professional backgrounds and you know i then became for a while the president of the st andrews foundation uh, you know the kind of fundraising body um here in the us to try to expand that so that you know kids like the rest of us you know could come uh to uh st andrews so it wasn't just all from you know a certain background and so we had to you know we we set up to, to create bursaries you know, kind of basically hardship grants and other things to expand uh, those, you know, scholarships, award law scholarships, all the kinds of things that St Andrews had. So we have to think about that for all kinds of international student groups. And, it, and it's going to be difficult to do that, but the alumni associations could certainly work. It's what other universities do in the United States and internationally to try to expand access, because that's going to help with diversity as well, because there's going to be people from other countries who have the same experience as all of us do. And it has to be, you know, diverse too, because, you know, most countries now you know, have large immigrant bodies, their demographics are changing, the generations are changing. So, you know, St Andrews should look more like the world, just like it should look more like the UK at large. And so money, funding, you know, how we do this is going to be part of that too.
And I'm sure Layla's got lots of ideas. Layla, do you have anything that you'd like to add on that? For me, it's... For me, is widening that door and make actually people feeling. For me, I'm going back to the feeling. I think it's the feeling that I can come to this. I think that has to change because I think St. Andrews has... um, Let's 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 call it out. We associate it with Prince William and 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 and, and Kate Williams, for fundamentally. Like every time I mention St Andrews, when people say where is that, and I have to mention this, they're like, oh, okay. So it's it's we need to kind of find a way where you know I went to a, a, you know secondary school called George Mitchell in East London. It was one of the best schools in town, you know, in in the UK. But I want the kids from that school to feel they can also come to that place. I think for me, it's getting changing that feeling that I can access. Uh, um, so it, but for international students again. But I mean, I, if we go to international students, I'm thinking about kids. I'm thinking about the, the the young people. I meet some of the most smartest young people in my current job in working in Africa, but they can't even make it to Nairobi, which is the main city. They don't have the means. So how can this institution ensure there is some support even for that very smart young woman who really needs to come to this kind of institution to not just make her life better, but it's going to change her whole family's life, but she can't even make it to Nairobi. So for me, I want us to think out, you know, when we, when we say international, I want us to go a bit wider. Uh, but I think for me, it's bringing back that feeling that I can actually go. I, that has to change because there's still that sense of, listen, even me being in this position, I feel Sometimes I can't speak on it because I'm, I haven't been to this university. I haven't even been to similar institutions. So there is that imposter syndrome that's still happening even with me. So if I'm feeling like that, I can't even imagine someone else is not even in that, you know, radar. So that has to change. Um, but for international students, I want us to think about how do, how do we reach? What, what, what programs are we going to put in place for the university to actually do some sort of outreach to say, hey, you can come. There is the support. We can get the support for you. Yeah. There also has to be just, you know, quickly, Stella, because, you know, we have to also, it's not a one-way street of opportunity either. Um, you know, everybody feels imposter syndrome, you know, but we wouldn't. Yeah. If we knew more people who, from diverse backgrounds, we'd realise that we're all part of a much diverser, bigger community. So people also have to remember who are listening to this, who might not come from any of our backgrounds, that they benefit from getting to know us too. You know, we open doors. I mean, you know, I've learned a ton from listening to you. I mean, I, you know, I was already in my head imagining your commute across London and trying to, you know, put myself in, you know, your shoes and thinking about that, what that would be like. I mean, you don't learn empathy and you don't, you know, kind of, um, you know, learn about the world without actually having contact with other people. So everybody benefits, society benefits, but every individual benefits from meeting somebody who's different from them and learning a lot about their lives and their perspectives. The St Andrews will be a richer place for having, you know, kind of a more diverse student body. Absolutely. Awesome. So we're kind of coming to the end of the uh, of this podcast episode. Um, so just to kind of conclude, I want to uh, see if you guys have any advice for students on how to deal with feeling excluded or unwelcome at the university or at higher education institutions in general. Um, so we'll start off with Fiona. Well, look, I think what helps sometimes is having some formal mechanisms in the first instance, because, you know, if you don't um, meet um, 
you know, people who you click with, honestly, in the first few weeks. Some of my best friends at St Andrews are the people that I was actually sitting behind in the younger hall for the introductory session. You know, they, they were like the people I literally were on this side of me and the people in front, you know, and I, and I, I literally, I stuck with, you know, some of these guys, you know, for my entire you know, student life, and they were wonderful. And the other was, you know, my roommate, um, who unfortunately actually passed away in my first year, but the people who were, you know, kind of immediately around me in the unit and in, in the hall. So they were kind of like ready-made networks. But, you know, if you can't have that, you know, possibility to sort of make friends early on, or, you know, still like, you know, you did in your hall residence, or just people in your class, or walking down the street, or in the union bar, which Layla didn't have the time to go to, um, you know, there needs to be some sort of mechanism. So I think that, you know, the, the rectors, uh, you know, group, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the group, the aura there, uh, you know, can create, help to create a kind of a mechanism, you know, for people, you know, figure out how you can pair people up, you know, kind of, you know, uh, look actively across groups and, you know, just encourage students overall, people who are parts of the students union and student organizations to look out for each other, you know, to yeah. kind of just reach out and, you know, um, try to bring people in. And just be just more attentive, you know, to kind of creating these kind of communities of empathy and communities of support. And again, don't do it just based on because, oh, this person looks or sounds like me. And hey, look, you know, they're from the same background as I am. Just, you know, try to reach out and, you know, uh, you know, celebrate everybody else's difference. That's uh, that would be my advice. Absolutely. And I think that the Students Association is doing a lot of work on that, um, especially with the events that they're doing, trying to pair people up. Um, something that I found this year with coronavirus was um, obviously we had to do a lot more virtual events, but we found that a lot of the students that usually wouldn't come to in-person events because, you know, that would be overwhelming or too difficult right. for them really thrived in that online environment. And so I'm really hoping that it's something that we can really, you know, take advantage of going forward okay. and kind of keep that going. Um, okay, so Layla, um, any advice? Yeah, so just following up from what uh, Fiona and you have said, I think network and allies. And I, I recently added cheerleading squad, really. You really need people to cheer you on because it's one of the most difficult times we're going through right now. Waking up and brushing your teeth is a big achievement now. Making it to your first Zoom call or your first class is a big achievement. Please high five yourself when that happens because the struggle is really real and you're not on your own. I really want anyone who's listening to this to really remember that. So build your network, you know, build your allies, make sure you have people that cheer you on when you're really having a, a difficult time. And, and, I, and, and this is something that I do uh, for myself. But also, this is going to sound very cheesy, but be very kind to yourself right now. Like, I really cannot stress that enough because we are in a very difficult times. People are really in a very lonely space. There are some people actually physically alone and it really is having an impact. Uh, it's tough. We just see a tweet and it can set us off right now. You know, I read one particular tweet today and I had to, I have my safe space where I can just rant about it because with my position, I cannot rant online anymore. <laughs> so it's having that uh, space to um, reach out to people and um, but being kind. It's so important more than ever, but especially to yourself. Very, very important. And please reach out, you know, reach out to the rector's committee, to the student uh, uh, union um, association. It's so important you reach out to those uh, networks right now. And also one big, big lesson I recently learned, everything will happen at its time. Sometimes it feels like do not compare yourself to other people. Everything is meant to happen at its time. So just let it happen. That's definitely, because we are going through a really interesting times 
right now all you can do is just to be kind to yourself awesome and i think the only thing i'd add to that is especially the students who do have those networks already established you know maybe consider reaching out to other students who might be struggling with that and trying to kind of expand your circle in that way to incorporate you know other students who might struggle with making those kind of connections um awesome so the kind of final question i have uh in the podcast is to the kind of uh, propose a, a hypothetical if you could go back in time um to you you know I, I guess for me my first year at university for you when you were at university and if you could tell yourself one thing what would it be I think I'd tell myself what Leila just said actually there that everything comes in a certain time because I felt so much pressure in that you know yeah I think I spent just ridiculous amounts of time in the library because you know like Leila was saying you know, my school was, you know, not really, you know, kind of up to the level for getting people at university. And as soon as I got there, I thought, oh, my God, all these people know all this stuff. I know, I know none of this. I didn't even know half the time what they were talking about. And I felt under so much pressure to cram everything in. I didn't think of life as being, you know, this long arc where, you know, things happen in different um, sequencing. And I felt like there were no second chances. Well, actually, I've discovered there are a lot of second chances. And I think, you know, what Leila just said, things will come in their own time. You know, sometimes, you know, you might have to look, look at um, Joe Biden in the United States as president. He tried how many times to become president? And now he's, you know, on the verge of 80. And, you know, kind of his time has come. And, you know, he's had extreme uh, tragedies in his life, losing children, his wife, you know, all kinds of things have happened. And, you know, like Leila's story about, you know, having a child, you know, having to kind of do things in totally different sequence, having to live with a mum you know, traveling two hours, you know, all the way across, um, you know, London to get the education. We all have different challenges. We all have to do things in a different way. But, you know, we've got time. And, you know, this is actually yeah. even even the pandemic has opened up, you know, a tragedy, of course, but, you know, also opportunity here. And, you know, as you said, Stella, you can thrive in different environments. And, you know, we're, we're having a chance to, you know, talk in a way we never would have done other than this and you know I think we're all getting that sense and I wish I'd known that you know back in St Andrews Mm -hmm. instead of putting myself under intense pressure you know all the time you know to kind of cram everything in thinking that I'd never get another opportunity so you know take it down a bit and realize there's a whole hopefully lifetime yeah no literally following what Fiona said uh it's Everything that's happened is going to happen, it's about, but failure is okay. I wish someone told me that. Actually, failure is actually a lesson. I learned more from my failures. My m- most successes came from my failures. So don't be scared. Um, if I had to go back, I would say to Layla, do not be scared of your failures, because that really worried me, because I was a uh, uh, you know, first generation of refugees that came to this country. So I had that pressure to really perform well, because my parents left all their assets behind for me you know it was like that that's a lot of pressure to have on yourself so I had I wasn't I, I didn't feel I could fail but actually when I ended up failing and I had to recover but actually my best achievements stems from my failures so failure is something you absolutely should welcome that's what I would have said to myself absolutely and um, well thank you both for um discussing uh widening access for me today Um, I'm really looking forward to the next podcast, but I think that we've had a really good opportunity to kind of touch on, you know, the way that access to higher education has changed over the years um, and ways that 
we can improve that access and recognize people's individual experiences and recognize that regardless of where you're coming from, um, everyone should have access to education and everyone deserves that. So um, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you, uh, Fiona, for joining us. Um, and I look forward to our next discussion, Leila, um, yes. on the next podcast. Thanks, Fiona.